All right, our Bibles are open to Genesis chapter 3, and as you're getting your Bibles open there, why don't you also pull out your Looking to Jesus worship guide as well, and you'll see room uh, that there's room there on page 13 of your worship guide to take notes. And if you are just tuning into this series with us this morning, we started this brand new sermon series a few weeks ago called Looking to Jesus, and we're spending all of 2018 going from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 to the very end of the Bible in Revelation 22. And we're hitting many of the key stories and the key themes along the way and tracing the story of our Savior from the very start to the very finish. In fact, it's been said that if you do not make the effort to understand what happens in the book of Genesis, then you'll have a hard time understanding the rest of the Bible. Because what happens in the book of Genesis is really foundational to what happens in the rest of the Bible. And That really is one of the reasons why we are going to spend a fair bit of time over the next few weeks in the book of Genesis at the very beginning of this series. But the reality of that statement is highlighted all the more when we open our Bibles to a passage like Genesis 3. Genesis 3 describes the fall of man. It helps us see how sin entered the world at the very beginning, and this may be a passage that is familiar to many of us in the room. Maybe you've been to Genesis 3 many times before and you're somewhat familiar with the story. You know how it goes. Adam and Eve are in the garden. Satan comes and tempts them. Adam and Eve disobey God by doing something that God told them not to do. Satan takes off and God comes in and finds them and they try to hide from God, but it doesn't work. There's consequences for their sin. And then Adam and Eve are banished from the garden and you know how the story goes. But this passage is so important for us to understand this morning because here's what it comes down to. If we do not understand the magnitude of sin in the garden, we will never understand the necessity of Christ on the cross. If we do not understand the magnitude of sin in the garden, we will never understand the necessity of Christ on the cross. Furthermore, If we do not understand the magnitude of sin in the garden, we will not understand why our life and why our existence and why this world around us is the way that it is. Because for all of the ways that people tell us that everything is good and everyone is good, I mean, all we need to do is take a quick look around us and realize that things are not good. Things are not right. Humanity is not good. The world is not good. We see glimpses of good every now and then, but we all have something within us that helps us understand that at its core, things are not the way that they should be. We live in a culture that is constantly trying to reinterpret what God has said, and it only ends in disaster. I mean, we don't really need to look much further than all of these conversations that are going on around human sexuality and moral and ethical boundaries. Moreover, we're encouraged by our culture We're encouraged by our culture to put ourselves in places of authority that rightfully and only belong to God. A culture that incessantly chirps in our ear and says, why let someone else tell you what is right and wrong when you can determine what is right and wrong for yourself? Listen, we look around us and we hear all of this and we know on some level, on many levels, things are not right. Things are not good. But to lay the blame at the feet of our culture only goes on to prove the point of Genesis 3, which we're going to see as we make our way through this passage, because the primary problem is not the culture that we live in. The primary problem is the culture that lives in us. We are sinful, 
And part of our sinfulness includes this overwhelming tendency to look past the fact that there is still this sinful nature within us that is struggling for control of us. We will never understand the magnitude of that until we understand what happens here in Genesis chapter 3. And so here's what I want us to see this morning, that at its heart, Genesis 3 is teaching us that the problem of my sin is solved by the promise of my Savior. The problem of my sin is solved by the promise of my Savior. And in the process, this passage is exposing three realities for us, three things that we see from this passage. First, you can write these down in your notes. Number one, the reasons for our sin. In the early parts of this book, you can see at least two main reasons for our sin. And here's the first, we have forgotten who God really is. We have forgotten who God really is. Other pastors and commentators have highlighted this, and I think it's really helpful for us to see this at this particular point. Notice first that all through chapter 1, when you read through chapter 1 that we looked at in our last message in this series, we see God creating. In chapter 1, over and over again, says God created, and God made, and God said, and and God did this. And through chapter 1 and then into the early part of chapter 2, the name God is used some 34 times. And that name of God there in chapter 1 and 2 is the name Elohim. That name highlights God as the creator God, as powerful, as sovereign, as independent, as in control over everything that he has created. So this name, Elohim, highlights the greatness of God. It causes us to see God in all of his glory and all of his grandeur, that he is great over everything that he has made. But then we get to chapter 2, and chapter 2 provides a more detailed account of God's creation of Adam and Eve, and throughout the rest of chapter 2, we see the name Lord God. You can see it there in your Bible as you read through chapter 2, and that name is used 11 times in that chapter alone, and the name Lord there means Yahweh. And that name of God emphasizes God's loving and covenant relationship with his people. It emphasizes his love and his care and his kindness toward those who belong to him. So this name, Yahweh, emphasizes the goodness of God. So notice here that when God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden and enters into relationship with them, we put these two names of God together, Lord God, and we see the greatness and the goodness of God coming together and working for the good of his people. But then we get to chapter 3, and something really interesting happens. The serpent enters the garden in chapter 3, and notice now how this conversation goes between the serpent and Eve. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, pause there for a second, and do you see the subtle shift? Satan does not call him the Lord God. He only refers to him as God. Eve answers then in verse 2, and she says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, there it is again, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Then Satan just drives it home all the more. Verse 4, he says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows, there it is again, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Well, how will you be like God, Eve? What will that look like in your life for you to be like God? It'll mean that you'll be powerful like God, which is what Satan says at the end of that verse. He says, knowing good and evil. 
So in the matter of a few short sentences, right at the beginning here, Satan has convinced Eve that though God may be great in all that he has created, he is not good enough to care for you and for the details of your life. Now maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't know, man. Because that just kind of sounds a little bit to me like you're splitting hairs a little bit. And, and is it really that big of a deal if he's God in chapter 1 and then he's Lord God in chapter 2 and then he's God again in chapter 3? I mean, isn't it just enough for us to know that he's God and that he's the main character in this story? But see, loved ones, that is exactly the point. Satan's strategy from the very beginning has been to water down our view of God. And the way that he does it here is by deliberately separating the goodness of God from the greatness of God. He did it to Adam and Eve back then in the garden. He does it to countless numbers of people still today. Notice here that Satan does not deny God's power. Okay, All Adam and Eve have to do is look around the garden around them and they can see the vastness of God's glory in his creation. They can see his power on display all over the place, all around them. Instead, Satan slithers into the garden and he begins to create doubt that God is good. He begins to create doubt that God's plan is good. He begins to create doubt that God's ways are good. I mean, just imagine this. Can't you just picture this dialogue unfolding between Eve and the serpent in the garden? And it's like, come on, Eve. I mean, if God really loved you, then why wouldn't he let you have any tree in the garden? I mean, why would he hold something back from you that looks so good and makes you feel so right? I mean, come on, Eve, just think about it. Just put the dots together. Why is God taking all the fun out of your life? I mean, just think about how much fun you would have and how much fulfillment you would find if you could just have everything that you see around here, including all of the stuff that God says that you should not have. And is that not exactly the same way that Satan operates today? Come on, man. Like, why would you get married when you can just live together? Come on, man. Sure, God said that sex is for husband and wife within the boundaries of a loving marriage. But why would you do that when you can just go ahead and have this deep intimacy whenever you want with whomever you want? Come on, man. Like, why be tied down to one specific gender when you think you can find your worth and your value in calling yourself something different? Loved ones, we need to see this has been Satan's strategy from the very beginning, and it will not change. He slithers his way in and gets close enough to us to try to convince us that ultimately God is not good. That if God really loved you, then why would he hold all of these things back from you? But what we need to see right now is that the overriding theme of Scripture, the overriding thread that goes through all the redemption story, is that God loves his people with a perfect and a pure and a holy and a righteous love. And that he has ordered this life to be lived in such a way that when we live in the way that he wants us to live, that's when we experience true closeness to God. That's when we see that God is both great and he is good to his people. That's when we see God for who he really is. But this reason for our sin just magnifies how serious this is because when we forget who God really is, that leads then directly to this next reason that we sin. We have rebelled against what God actually said. We have rebelled against what God actually said. Look at the second part of verse 1. It says, He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
God actually say that? No, he didn't say that. Go back for a second to chapter 2 and verse 16, just a few verses before this. Chapter 2 and verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Satan's attack has always been against the truth of God's word. And isn't it interesting that most often Satan's strategy is to twist God's word just enough to make you and I wonder, did God really say that? Like, maybe that's the words that God used, but did God really mean that? Like, did he really say that? Because Satan knows that if he can get people to doubt and distort and disbelieve what God actually said, then people will begin to see God differently. They will begin to see themselves differently. They will begin to see the entire world and all of existence around them differently. And when we begin to buy into the doubts and the distortion and the disbelief of everything that God has said, the things that we begin to see are never as good as they first promised themselves to be. See, the sin for Eve here was not simply eating the fruit from a tree that God said was off limits. The sin was in her not believing that what God had already said was the best way for her to live. See that? Ultimately, it's not just the thing that you do that is considered to be sin. Because everything that you and I do is driven by a deeper motivation of something else that is already deep within us. So for example, it's not just the way that you cheat a customer out of the service that you said you would give them. It's not just the possession that you steal. It's not just the addiction that you try to hide. Because at its core, it's a belief in your heart that what God has said about that particular area of your life is not the best way for you to live. It's you and me going back to God every time we sin. You and I going back to him and saying, God, I know you've said this, and I know this is what you want me to do, but I think I've got a better way. I think I can do it differently. It's going to turn out better for me. Sometimes it's not just how we actively disobey God. It's, it's not just knowing God says something and not doing it. Sometimes it's, it's not doing something that we know we should do instead. Let me give you an example. As a pastor, one of the areas I see this on a somewhat frequent basis is baptism. And for some people, when the subject of baptism comes up, you can see the spiritual wheels turning in their head and in their heart and, and this internal conversation that gets going that, that's like, God, I know I need to do this and I know this is what you've said that I should do and, and I just don't know if I can do it. Because what's my family going to think and what are my friends going to think and, and it absolutely terrifies me to get in a tank of water in front of a room full of people and talk about the things that you've done in my life to save me and change me. I don't know if I can do this. Can I just be honest with you for a minute? All of that, that's my story. I've shared with you before that God saved me by his grace when I was seven years old, but I didn't get baptized until I was 15. And it was in those last few years, especially when, when I was 13, 14, going on 15, where this whole subject of baptism, this whole thing just felt like it was hanging over my head like this weight balloon, like this lead balloon, because I knew I had to do this. 
not because it was just something for me to check off on my spiritual scorecard and make God happy with me, but I knew I had to do this because this is something that God was telling me to do. I needed to do this because this was a, a symbol of the work that God had done in my life, that God had come to me in his grace and in his mercy, and he had opened my eyes to the reality of my sin, and then he had shown me at the same time my need for the Savior who alone is Jesus Christ, and he gave me faith to believe and the ability to repent of my sin and turn to him and trust in him, and so that me getting into to the water to be baptized. When I go down under the water, it's a symbol that I'm dead in, dead to my sins, that I'm no longer bound by my sins, that Christ has taken all of my sins and that my sins are buried with him and that when I come back up out of the water, it's a symbol that I'm alive in Christ, that I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus, that he has made me new and it's glorious news and I'm getting into the tank to testify about the reality of what God has done within my life and letting everyone know that I'm committing my life to following him for the rest of my life. Like, this is good news. I knew that I needed to do this. But there was a stretch in my life where I didn't do it because I was afraid. And I didn't get it so much then because I think I was too young to understand it, but I can look back on it and see it now. That the main reason that I did not do it is because I was not convinced that what God had said was best. At that particular point in my life, I was far more concerned about what my family thought. I was more concerned about what my friends thought. I was more concerned about how I was ever going to get over the terror of stepping in a tank and talking about this work that God had done in my life. And, and I was trying to figure all this out. I was at a point in my life where I was not yet convinced that God had the power to calm the raging storm in my heart so that I could, that I could walk in obedience to him. And the good news is that by his grace and by his mercy, God came to me and God softened my heart to these things and God gave me the ability and the strength by the power of the Holy Spirit to get into that tank and to testify to the work that God had done and I was baptized. There are some of you in this room right now and that's your story too. Except you haven't been baptized yet. That when it comes to this one area of your relationship with God, your fear is clouding your ability to see that what God has said is best. And there are others of you in this room right now. And baptism is not that surface issue for you. You've got to understand that whether it's baptism or whether it's something else in your life, that all of these surface issues are not just the only issue, that there's something deeper inside of us, in our heart, that is, just keeps pushing all of these other things up to the top. And, and those are the issues that we see. Maybe for you, it's an unhealthy relationship you've been holding on to. Maybe it's a financial concern you can't let go of. Maybe it's a big step of faith that God is calling you to. Maybe it's a temptation to find fulfillment in a relationship in a way that God has already said is off limits. Listen, loved ones, God has spoken. And he has spoken so clearly. He has spoken so clearly to us in his word right here. It is so clear. And there is no need for us to redefine or recalibrate what God has already perfectly said. He has, he has ordered life in a certain way so that when we live life in that way, that is when we experience our greatest joy and our deepest freedom. So for those of you for whom baptism is that issue that's at the surface right now, and, and maybe for you it's not that. Maybe it's something completely different. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's a situation that you need wisdom on that you just can't figure out right now. Whatever that surface issue is for you right now, I want you to hear this so clearly. God is full of grace. 
God is full of kindness and compassion and love for his people. And he will give you everything that you need to walk in obedience to him when you walk by faith. For those of you for whom baptism is that surface issue, we have people lined up for our baptism service in two weeks. And if the Lord is speaking to you about this in your life right now, it is not too late for you to get in that line. So let's be clear here. We are faced with countless numbers of situations through the course of our week, let alone through the course of our life, where we are tempted to forget who God really is and what God has actually said, which leads then to the results of our sin. So Eve takes this fruit, she takes a bite, and that one act of disobedience sets into motion this avalanche of consequences. And you can see here from Genesis 3 that there are eight primary results of our sin. And you can jot these down. Don't worry that there's eight. We're not going to be here till Tuesday. Just jot these down as we go. Eight primary results of our sin. What happens to us because of sin? And more specifically, what happens to us because of our sin? So first, jot this down. We know guilt. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, when we sin, our first instinct, just like Adam and Eve, is to cover it up. We try to make sure that nobody else knows not only what we've done, but that nobody else knows how much guilt we feel because of what we've done. And then to consider that what we have done has been done against an infinitely holy God. We know this guilt, but then secondly, we bear shame. Notice verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the shame instantly washes over them. They take this guilt that they already feel and then they try to hide it by overcompensating with something else that God has already given them to enjoy. And just think of some of the ways that this plays out in our life as well. Your marriage is not going the way that you want it to go, so you work longer hours to cover up the shame of going home to a situation that you can't fix. You know that you've stepped over some boundaries in a certain relationship, so you try to make up for it in other ways where you feel that you have more control. And the longer that we carry the guilt and the shame, it leads then to this next result. We experience fear. Verse 9 says this, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. Now isn't that interesting? Adam knows that God is near but he's afraid because he also knows that suddenly he does not measure up to God's standard. And when sin happens for us, when we fall into sin, the same thing becomes apparent for us. We become afraid of God. We're afraid that he's watching everything we do. We're afraid that if we don't take care of ourselves, then who will? We're afraid that if we acknowledge our sin to him, then we'll have to suffer the consequences for it. We're afraid that God will punish us in this life, and even more so, we're afraid that God will punish us in the life to come. Which leads then to result number four. We deflect responsibility. Often we feel that the only way to escape our guilt and shame and fear is to blame it on somebody else. Verse 11 says this, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? 
The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. See, we deflect responsibility away from ourselves. So notice this here in the text. Adam begins by blaming God. He says, this woman that you gave me, God, this woman you gave me. And then he continues by blaming Eve. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. It's her fault. And then Eve blames Satan. Verse 13, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, pause here just for a second and go back to verse 6 where this whole mess began. Verse 6, Eve, uh, Eve sees that the fruit is good for food and pleasing to the eye. It'll make her wise. And then the last part of verse 6 says this, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, when verse 6 says there that her husband was with her, you got to keep in mind that at this particular point in the creation narrative, Adam and Eve are literally the only people on the face of the earth. Okay, God created them to be together, to be in relationship with one another. So it's not like they're off on their own separate ways exploring the goodness and the greatness of God's creation. They are together. And so when verse 6 says that her husband was with her, the idea here is that while Eve reaches up into the tree and picks this piece of fruit, and then when she looks at the piece of fruit, and then she opens her mouth to eat the piece of fruit, and then she eats the piece of fruit. Adam is standing right there. He's watching this whole thing happen. And he doesn't say anything. So it kind of makes you wonder. Adam's standing there. He doesn't say anything. And it makes you wonder if he's thinking this whole time. Huh. God said that if we eat a piece of fruit from that tree, that we will surely die. Eve is about to eat a piece of fruit from that tree. I wonder if she's going to die. And the dude just stands there. And he watches the whole thing happen. He doesn't say anything. This is just as much his fault as it is hers. So when we get now to verse 11, verse 11 is like a turning point in this whole passage. So God comes to Adam and Eve in this moment and God asks these questions and God is not only calling Adam out on his sin, but notice this, he is now inviting Adam to repentance. You see this? See, this is what happens when God speaks. When we place ourselves under the authority of his word, it is an act of his grace to show us how we have sinned against him, but then he invites us to make things right with him. So we look at this. This is an amazing act of the grace and the mercy of God to come to sinners right in their sin and to deliver them. But then look at what happens next. Instead of making things right with God, Adam throws his brand new wife right under the bus and he blames everything on her. I mean, listen, loved ones, this is what our sin does. It blinds us to the truth. It blinds us to seeing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Remember when God first gave Eve to Adam? Remember that back in chapter 2? It wasn't that long ago. It's just a few verses right before this. And God creates Eve out of Adam and 
Adam wakes up from this deep sleep and he looks across the vast expanse of the garden and he sees Eve for the very first time, right? And his, like, his heart's beating, his eyes are huge, and he's like, oh man, this is outstanding. Like, yes, like, thank you, God, finally, right? And that's what the Bible says, at last, finally, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones, she shall be called woman for she has come from man. And like Adam is just praising the Lord because just before this, he's had this long parade of animals going up and down, back and forth, right in front of him. He's naming every single one of them, gets to the end and there is no helper suitable for him. So then God puts him into a deep sleep and he wakes him up a little bit later and he looks out across the garden and there's Eve and it's like, yes, like she's mine. And, and it's so great. Adam, in that moment, he's praising the Lord. But now we get to chapter three just a little bit later, and now he's blaming God because everything has gone bad so quickly. That's what our sin does. That's how despicable it is. When sin reigns, we deflect responsibility. But, but then this, notice this number five, we feel pain. Skip down to verse 16. God is telling them what the consequences are for their sin against him. And he says, verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children. Ladies, anybody have this one as a life verse? <laughs> Probably not. There's pain in childbirth. There's pain in our relationships. And then this, number six, we encounter conflict. Verse 16, again, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Back in Genesis 2, God creates Eve out of Adam as a helper fit for him. And, and remember, this structure was established by God before sin, not because of sin. But then because of sin, part of the curse would be the struggle of the wife in submitting to her husband's leadership. Eve would fight a sinful desire to assert leadership over Adam, and Adam will abandon his God-given role to lead and love and care for his wife, and he would replace it with a selfish desire to rule over her. Which leads then to the next result, number seven, we endure frustration. Look at verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So back in chapter 1, God creates with so much intricacy and variety and generosity, so now this labor over the ground is certainly a curse. But we need to be very careful with this because the work itself is not part of the curse. The frustration from the work is the curse. The idea of work is rooted in creation. God made us in his image, and part of bearing his image is our capacity to create and to be creative. So everything that we do and every job that is represented across this room right now is meant to multiply the goodness and the glory of God in the world around us. Every workplace that is represented here right now is a mission field for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But all of us know this from our experience. We endure frustration along the way. Things rarely go perfectly and often do not go the way that we think they should. Sometimes we stall at a point of not knowing what to do or how to fix it. And never is this seen more clearly than in the final result of sin. Number eight, we suffer death. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat your bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The curse of sin leads to physical death. 
Now see this. This is really, really bad news. The world is not good. Humanity is not good. We have a major problem, and this is where the vast majority of world religions would end the story right here, with a call to try harder and do better and save yourself. But the good news of Genesis 3 is that the story is not over yet. And we see that the attempt to make things right actually does not begin with us, it actually begins with God. And so finally, I want you to see three ways for us to respond to the redemption that God provides in light of our sin. Okay, three ways. Here's the first. Receive the grace of God. Pick it up in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So this is where death first enters the story because of sin. So there's the mention of death back in verse 19. Now there's the reality of death here in verse 21. One of the animals that God created only a short time before dies and the skin is used to cover the shame of the sinners. Fast forward a little bit in the Old Testament and, and we start to see this pattern built on. In order to be in the presence of God and be right with him, there must be a sacrifice of an innocent animal to cover the sin of the people. This then begins to set the stage for the death of an innocent man whose sacrificial death will cover the shame and the sinfulness of his people. Not so we can be clothed in the skin of a sacrifice, but listen, so we can be clothed in the righteousness of the one who was sacrificed for us. The Lamb of God would be slain to take away the sins of the world. This sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our place and for our sins takes all of our guilt and all of our shame and all of our fear and all of our responsibility upon himself. And it is this grace that by the power of the Holy Spirit enables you and me to overcome the enemy when we are tempted to forget who God is and what God has said. So loved ones, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and receive this grace in your life. Look at what happens next. Number two, embrace the mercy of God. Verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, see the mercy of God to Adam and Eve, and see the mercy of God to you and me. God banishes them from the garden, this place that only moments ago gleamed in absolute perfection, but has now been corrupted by sin. They have been cast out of this garden, and that is a really, really good thing. You say, well, wait a minute. Why is it a good thing that God has taken them out of this place where he has first put them, this paradise? Why is it good that they have been removed from this place? Well, look at where Adam and Eve are. They're in the Garden of Eden. They've already eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now, in his mercy, God comes to them, and removes them from the temptation to reach out and eat from the tree of life. Because if they reach out and eat from the tree of life, they will live forever in the cursed and sinful condition that they are now in. Do you see the problem here? Do you see the mercy of God here? 
If God does not come in his mercy and take them out of this garden and they eat from the tree of life, they will be eternally separated from God. And God loves them too much to let that happen. And God loves you and me too much to let that happen to us as well. You say, well, hang on just a second. What do you mean by that? Because we're not in the Garden of Eden like Adam and Eve were all those years ago. Well, no, we're not. But we have the same problem that Adam and Eve had all those years ago. Keep a finger here in Genesis 3 and flip ahead in your Bible, if you would, to the book of Romans. Book of Romans in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. The Apostle Paul is, is writing this book of Romans to this church in Rome, to this group of Christians, and, and he's just unpacking the, the glory of the gospel and everything that God has done for us to give us justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And I want you to see that what God talks about here in Genesis 3 is explained more fully in the book of Romans. So look at Romans chapter 5, and starting at verse 12. Paul says this, Romans 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So Paul is saying here that, we all die because, not because of just the sin of Adam, not just because he sinned back in the Garden of Eden, but because his sinful nature is also within all of us. So go down now, Romans 5, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. So what's the free gift? The free gift is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So in other words, Adam's one sin in the Garden of Eden brought condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of dying and rising again brings a right relationship with God to all who will receive this free gift by faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul's point here in Romans 5 is to teach us not only the reality of this massive problem that we have of Genesis 3, but to show us that a greater Adam has indeed come. And he has done what the first Adam should have done but could not do. So where Adam was tempted and failed... Jesus was tempted and overcame. Jesus overcame by doing what Adam and Eve originally failed to do, and that is to obey God perfectly. And so in Genesis 3, from the very beginning of the Bible, we see this thread of God's mercy that stretches all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 8, right after all of this has happened, right after they've picked this fruit from the tree and they've eaten and they've sinned against God, they've disobeyed against him, we see this thread of God's mercy stretching all the way back. God, listen, God is coming after them. Isn't that astounding? God is pursuing them. And he's pursuing them, not just in his judgment. He is pursuing them to rescue them. He is pursuing them to bring them back into relationship with him. So see this now. Not only do we receive the grace of God and embrace the mercy of God, but then finally this, celebrate this salvation from God. Celebrate the salvation of God. Here's where it all comes together. Flip back in your Bible now to Genesis 3. Take a look right in the middle of this passage, verse 14. Genesis 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here it is, loved ones. Notice this. This is the first promise of the gospel. This is the first promise of a Savior in the entire Bible, right here in Genesis 3, 15. This is such good news. So circle this in your Bible, verse 15. Put a square around it, stars beside it, highlight it, do whatever you got to do so that this sticks out in your Bible. Notice this. God curses the serpent, and he says to Satan that there will be enmity. There will be this constant struggle that continually rages. But then in verse 15, God says that Eve's offspring is a he, That he is Jesus. God says there will come a time when Jesus will bruise Satan's head and Satan will bruise Jesus' heel. In other words, Satan will cause Jesus to suffer. Jesus would suffer greatly at the hands of his enemies and he would ultimately suffer on the cross in our place and for our sins. But God then also says that there is coming a day when Jesus will bruise Satan's head. In other words, Jesus will deal a final fatal blow to Satan and his army of demons and Jesus will show himself to be forever victorious. So you got to see this. That's not all though. There's more. If, If you still have your finger in Romans, turn to Romans 16. If not, that's okay. But Romans chapter 16, I want you to see how God brings together in Romans 16 what he says in Genesis 3, 15, because this is outstanding. This is so great. Romans 16. So Paul is putting the finishing touches on this letter to the Christians in Rome. He's just spent this whole book outlining doctrine and beautiful theology and everything that God has done for us in the gospel to give us this free gift of justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then Paul's wrapping up this letter in Romans 16, and he says this in verse 19. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And then here it is in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Are you kidding me? Like what an amazing way to end the book of Romans, right? Like this is, a, this is outstanding. Like all of this glorious doctrine and theology and going so deep and so wide with everything that God has done for us. And then Paul gets to the very end and he's like, oh, and by the way, your God will one day crush the head of the enemy right under your feet. And by the way, have a nice day. Right? And like you are loved and we are out. I mean, this is amazing that he would do this, that he would say this. But then we go even further in the New Testament to the very end and listen to what Revelation 12 says about the final destiny of the adversary, Satan. Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent. There he is. Same serpent that we see in Genesis 3. Who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then, as promised, one final decisive blow will happen. Revelation 20 and verse 9. It's talking about Satan's final terror, his reign of terror on the earth during the end times. And Revelation 20 and verse 9 says this. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. 
And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. One day, the deceiver will be defeated by this great and conquering king, Jesus. And all of those who have refused the free gift of salvation from this king, Jesus, will share in Satan's defeat. But all of those who receive this free gift of salvation will share in Jesus' victory both now and forevermore. This, my friends, this is a salvation worth celebrating. And this is the salvation worth believing on. And this is the only salvation worth losing your life for. So if you are here today and you do not know this sin-conquering Jesus... We plead with you to turn away from the sin that Genesis 3 and Romans 5 says is in every single one of us and trust in this great conquering King and Savior, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and believe in him and follow after him for the rest of your life. The good news of the Bible and the good news of Genesis 3 is that the problem of my sin is solved by the promise of my Savior. Loved ones, celebrate this great salvation from our glorious God.